Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 50 of Cosmic Controversy, the Big 5 Today, I'm excited to welcome geneticist and computational biologist Christopher Mason from Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. Mason received his PhD in genetics from Yale University in 2006. And among his many professional affiliations, his lab also works with NASA on ways to facilitate the necessary molecular foundations and genetic defenses for enabling long-term human spaceflight. News of his research has appeared on the covers of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and across a plethora of television networks. But today we'll be discussing his new book, The Next 500 Years, Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds, from MIT Press. Its narrative focuses on the limits of human endurance in space and how we will therefore need to bioengineer ourselves if we want to inhabit other planets and eventually other solar systems. Mason joins us from Brooklyn, New York. Chris, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So first off, uh, congratulations on the book, which uh, brings up topics that are almost never bandied about in the mainstream media, such as how we can use bioengineering to permanently move off-world, not only to Mars, but to an Earth 2.0 in a nearby solar system, mm-hmm. all within the next 500 years. And so within the time frame, roughly, that Columbus first sailed to the New World till today. So we can't cover everything in the book, but I do want to hit on some of the high points in the episode. And uh, just as I was discussing in the pre-interview, there was a breaking news story, which may not be news to you, but the news outlet, The Hill, is quoting you today as saying that there may already be forward contamination on Mars from some of the NASA rovers. There's different kinds of uh, uh, avenues of what are called planetary protection, and that means you want to avoid e- either contamination to another planet or from another planet, what's often called forward contamination or backward contamination. You know, but both of them you want to try to avoid or at least minimize uh, whenever you can. And so what I just described is that you know, if you think about all the spacecraft um, that have gone now to the red planet, they're all you know cleaned and getting you know, put to the points that when they're put, assembled, that they have very little biomass, or generally even only just a few hundred spores per square uh, meter or less, ideally. Uh, but they, they have never promised zero. And this goes back to Carl Sagan's work in the 70s. Uh, and also the, the Russians also follow international guidelines. You know, most people making spacecraft do everything they can to keep them as clean as they can, but it's never going to be zero. And so I actually have a book that just came out, as, as you were just describing, uh, that talks about a whole, a whole chapter about this. But as I make the point that there's a decent chance there's probably a little bit of DNA that's already there. Uh, and that, uh, you know, what, what's interesting is it used to be we wouldn't even know what it was. But now because we can sequence DNA and we don't have to wait to culture organisms, we could probably figure out what it is. It's kind of one of the points is that, is that even if it's there, I think we might have ways that we could figure out if it came from Earth or not actually when we get samples back from Mars in the next uh, 10 years. So basically... Uh in a worst-case scenario, we would be able to separate Earth, Earth-based life out from Mars-based life, you think? 
Yeah, yeah, which is kind of the kind of the the, uh, the good news, if you will. And it's interesting if you think you know some of the headlines are like, "Oh my gosh, what could happen?" It's like, well, that's been true <laughs> since the seventies. Uh, so I think the news part is that we can actually probably differentiate today what we couldn't really do that even four or five years ago. Okay, so first, uh, let's briefly talk about the NASA twin study, uh, which got mm-hmm. so much press, which you led. Uh, if I'm mm-hmm. not incorrect, the basics are that in 2015 to 2016, NASA astronaut Scott Kelly spent 340 days on the International Space Station, the ISS, and his his identical twin brother Mark, also an astronaut, stayed on Earth, and this provided a unique opportunity to run a twin study on the biological effects of space travel. You write in your book that quote our job was to a assess what happened to Scott during such a long mission, and b learn about the changes as a guide for Mars mission, as a guide for Mars missions, and then C, plan for ways to mitigate future risks to other astronauts. We were uh, very fortunate to be selected by NASA as, you know, uh, there, there were actually 10 teams total. So I was leading the genetics and some of the genomics aspect where we look at, you know, what happens at a, to the DNA and RNA and really the cellular changes inside the body. But there was other researchers looking at the cognition changes or looking at particular parts of immune function or, you know, people looking also at the vasculature or sort of parts of the body more from a biophysical level. So it was a really complete molecular and physiological and even behavioral portrait of what happens to the body for a year in space. And we really had very little knowledge of this because there had been some Russians that had been up in space for longer than a year, but only three of them. And there had this was the longest mission ever for NASA for a contiguous mission, uh, again, almost a year. And we didn't know what to expect. You know, Scott had been to space before, so had his brother, actually. They're both astronauts. Could you imagine being at a cocktail party and be like, oh, both my sons are astronauts? And people <laughs> be like, oh, that's, that can't be. You know, but really, they're both astronauts. And they're, tw- and they're twins to boot. I mean, that's Yeah, yeah they're twins. Yeah, so Senator <laughs> Kelly, now Mark Kelly's a senator. So um, they, they, you know, it's, you know, it's only two samples, right? There are two patients in the study. So it's not a big statistical study, but what we did, what we lacked in the numbers of subjects, we made up for in the time points. So we collected 280 samples over the course of that two and a half years to really get a fine grained look at cells, DNA, RNA, what happens inside their body, behaviorally, structurally, uh, you know, looked at everything we possibly could. And so what we found is, you know, that really the body responded in many ways to space, but a lot of these uh, stressors on the body were tolerated and, and eventually went back to normal. But the interesting thing is uh, uh, one of the things that you learned while Scott Kelly was orbiting Earth 400 kilometers above Earth's surface was he was also receiving the equivalent of four chest chest X-rays a day. (laughs) However, Mm -hmm. that's not funny, but I mean, you know, that's that's just a fact. Uh, However, (laughs) you note that uh, the expected level of radiation exposure from just radiation exposure from just a single Martian mission starts to approach the career limits for for astronauts. So. uh, so please give us uh, one of the two or three main takeaways from this whole NASA twin project. Yeah, you know, the radiation is, it's not lethal when you're in the in low Earth orbit or in the space station, you know, because there you're still protected by the Earth a lot. You're physically protected by the Earth, right? It's a giant planet that's blocking about half the universe from you. But also you have the Van Allen belt to really these, you know, the Earth's magnetosphere is actually really re- repelling high energy particles away from you. Once you get away from the Earth and head towards Mars, it, it, it can get more you know, dangerous and, and will be more dangerous. And you know, in terms of the amount of radiation, we, um, we know that we'll see more damaged DNA. We've already seen this in Scott Kelly and 59 other astronauts that we looked at and published last year, is that even in their urine or in their blood, you can see 
this damaged DNA kind of being eluded out of their body. That's kind of something you can track. And we expect to see more of that for these long missions. We're also looking to see, you know, their telomeres get longer in space, but then they come back to normal when they get back to Earth. And we think that some of this is because the low dose of radiation is actually probably getting rid of the cells that were about to die. And then you have some of the younger cells left. But it does mean that it is killing cells. And we can see some of that actually uh, also in the body. Uh, so we think, you know, there is uh, a, a host of different challenges to the body. The radiation is one of the biggest one, uh, biggest ones, but we're also looking at uh, other challenges. So like the isolation, you're far away from Earth, you don't have any resources. Uh, there's the, the cognitive and social challenges of being in such a confined environment. Uh, there's also obviously lack of gravity, so that's hard on the bones, the muscles, uh, and everything that's, you know, happening inside your body. And also just, you know, nutrition and generally making sure you stay in, in good shape is something that's, these are all challenges that, you know, we're looking at a lot of the scientists at NASA and other space agencies are looking at. So, uh, you know, we think that uh, we've learned from this mission, though, that uh, how to really use some of the latest tools in molecular biology, genetics, and also really what's called omics, or, you know, you look at all the different layers of biology uh, and, and use this to have really, at least, very least good monitoring, but then also we can even start to look at things like creating microbiomes that are more nutritious or even protective, essentially, for the astronauts. So we're really starting to, now that we've been mapping things, now we're looking at what can we build on top of that that can help, uh, help some of the uh, basically future astronauts. So let's get to the real driver behind your book, and that really mm-hmm. is to save humanity from its ultimate extinction, not necessarily mm-hmm. due to climate change here on Earth or a wayward asteroid impact, but due to the sun's eventual endgame as an expanding mm-hmm. red giant. That, that's exactly right. So I think, uh, you know, I, I argue that this is actually not just for the sake of exploration, but actually is also for, you know, the sake of, of preserving life and that we are the only species, as far as we know, in the whole universe that understands what extinction is. We're the only ones that know that species can die off and we're therefore the only ones that can prevent it. Uh, obviously, we can cause extinction, which we unfortunately have in some cases, but we're the only ones that can act to be served as kind of guardians and shepherds of life as we know it. And I really just think that we, you know, what's interesting is 20 years ago, it was really an impossibility to think about going to an exoplanet or a planet in another solar system uh, because on, there were only a handful that were known and they were all too close to their suns. Uh, and also 20 years ago, we barely had knowledge of genetics. too. We had just gotten the first human genome. We were still figuring out a lot of the fundamental facets of biology but fast forward to today, we actually have in spades a lot more of both those engines of discovery now pushing us forward into the future. So we have thousands of exoplanets, several hundred that are likely in the habitable zone. And we have really extreme resolution and exquisite you know, mapping of cell to cell changes in biology, physiology and how the genetics works and even engineered cells that we've begun to make therapeutically to treat cancer or other diseases. Uh, just yesterday, there's a paper that came out that actually showed a way you could actually do gene therapies uh, to treat uh, different kinds of inherited disorders or blindness or blood disorders have all been coming out in the past few years. So we really have this extraordinary opportunity to finally reach this precipice as a species to be able to uh, go to another planet because we even have someone we know we could go to and even to survive on their way there. And you write in your book uh, that the quote-unquote accidental evolution that has formed life thus far is also the reason for its current constraints. You are actually looking to free us from these constraints via directed bioengineering. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, you know, evolution as it stands has done a great job. Uh, obviously, it's made a, a whole wealth of different kinds of organisms all over the planet. 
but it has been done without any sort of guidance, without any sort of uh, design. And, you know, again, the, the design of something can still be done wrong. So just because we think we know what we're doing doesn't mean that we do. Uh, but, you know, so it involves a huge degree of hubris and really uh, self-assuredness to say, okay, I will begin to quite literally play a, a god and start to design organisms from scratch. But, you know, the hubris of this exercise does not obviate its necessities, that we will have eventually, I think, no choice but to do this because the alternative is arguably less ethical, where you just start to ship off organisms to other planets and say, we have all these amazing genetic engineering tools and cellular uh, control mechanisms that we could use to keep you safe, uh, but we decide not to do them or to even keep you alive. And so at some point, uh, we may be forced to deploy these technologies just for pure survival alone. Uh, and I, it could be wrong. I, I you know, say in the book, maybe we don't need as many of them as we think we do because maybe the bodies will be even more adaptable than we know today. But I think from everything we know, there's no way to get a human being to survive at you know, minus 250 degrees uh, for months on end or to survive with very limited resources for uh, centuries on their way to a new planet. So you note uh, in your book that embedded in every single neuron in a human brain is a shared ancestry of humans' mm -hmm. genetic code, deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, carrying the unique capacity for protecting and preserving the complexity and beauty of all life. Missions to yes. other planets, as well as ideas for planetary-scale engineering, are a necessary duty for humanity and a logical consequence of our unique cognitive and technological capabilities. That, that is a uh, succinct view that you know, evolution writes into the DNA of every organism its lessons. What does it learn? The adaptations that enables that organism to survive. And in, in the case of humans, though, we actually have inscribed in us, uh, in our DNA, the capacity for also for self-awareness, for reflection, for, again, this awareness of extinction and I think because we are, you know, we have this unique gift, uh, we have to look around and realize we're the only ones that recognize the threats to ecosystems, the threats to uh, the planet or to ourselves. I mean, it's at the very least a selfish concern, like we want to make sure that humans survive. But we also have to think about what other organisms uh, would be lost. And, and in this case, life, as far as we know it, has only existed on one planet. And, you know, maybe if we're lucky, it used to exist on Mars and, you know, maybe we'll find it. But it is apparently quite precious and rare in the universe and something I think that uh, is worth preserving in, in all of its forms. But I think we're the only ones that can do it as far as we know. This duty is an antecedent to any other duty. So whatever your moral priorities might be in life, you have to exist in order to enact them. And so this is preceding all of those. But let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Now, even if humans are able to move off world permanently and settle other solar systems, all the species on Earth, all the advanced, the uh, complex life, the whales, the cetaceans, which arguably are intelligent and arguably are sentient. What about all the life that you would ultimately have to leave behind? And then you go to a planet that maybe had no life and you start from scratch. Would, what, would a, what would life on a planet where there was no other life, aside from perhaps microbial life, be like? I mean, it would be pretty, pretty desolate, right? Yeah, yeah, it'd be pretty barren, and it would be an opportunity to hopefully preserve the life that we could find there. And if we do find, say, microbial life or other organisms there, you know, great, because then we could say, okay, maybe we, we, again, here, we want to preserve them as much as we can, but still keep it within the ethical framework I described in the book, which is a deontogenic framework, which is what is our genetic duty uh, towards uh, life? In this case, we want to try and keep life uh, around unless there are life forms that themselves 
inhibit the ability of other life to live. And so life itself is a struggle. As, as Darwin noted, there's a constant battle. But what is unique about humans is that we can keep this entire entirety of an edifice of struggle of evolution and genes and organisms, we can keep it going. Whereas if you just have evolution happening on one planet, for, uh, for example, Earth, eventually it will be literally engulfed by the sun and makes it so like really nobody like nobody wins in the end of that game right so they no matter how amazing you might be as an organism it's i don't think any organism we ever could conceive of would survive you know at uh you know 20,000 degrees celsius for example so you mentioned the term uh, deontogenic what do you mean by the term deontogenic uh, yes yes so um it, it comes from reading a lot of immanuel kant who's a philosopher it's kind of a variation of what's called a deontological ethics which is uh, basically, deontology is the is itself is the study uh, and the nature of duty and obligation. So it's the kind of the theology is the study of, and, and the deontological part of it is of what is the the nature of duty and of obligation. And normally, if you talk about duty at a cocktail party, it is the least exciting conversation you could be having. You'd want to go rather like do shots or drink beer with somebody else. Uh, but in this case, I I actually am extremely excited about this concept of duty because I. The deontogenic part is it means this is like essentially the nature of our what is our duty as organisms? What is our genetic duty? Uh, and I propose that it is this this function of serving as guardians of, of other of other self-replicating creatures that their their genetics. And and later in the book I describe it as a duty. You know, as I talk about it, like you know, we're the only ones that can preserve life as far as we know. So I think that it is worth preserving and is antecedent to all their ethical priorities, just by the nature of its survival. But I am I am open and very much intrigued by to the idea of it not always being DNA based intelligence. It could be some AI. It could be a silicon based. You know, there I describe later in the book that in the future, several hundred years from now, it's very possible that it could be something that's like a an, a self aware AI that is carrying the torch of this duty. And so it starts as a genetic duty, but I, I mean it more in a self replicating information context. So, so are you literally saying that uh, perhaps it'll be a self replicating AI? which is better able to survive the wilds of space uh, yeah. but at the same time at the same time have all the data that's accumulated from you know 200,000 years of human existence uh, mm-hmm. into this AI is that what you're is that what you're saying exactly yeah. exactly and it might do, it might do a better job than we would i mean and i think that's what that, that might be great right so because you know, some people think of AI like the, term, the movie The Terminators or some scene in like AI where you know essentially the robots have taken over and at some point the robots might look at humans and say, aha, humans are the threat, so we'll just kill them all. And I, I, I don't think that would necessarily happen if they have an intelligence that is like our own. They might look as we do now. We see threats in the, in the world, right? We see lions could kill us and eat us or we see you know, mosquitoes carrying dengue could, could cause us disease or kill people. But we don't try to necessarily completely destroy all of that species, but we do control it. We do try to minimize it. Uh, but even in the case of some species, if we view it as too dangerous of a threat, we do get it down to almost zero or sometimes zero, like uh, smallpox. We have not, there's no, there's no one you know, parading around saying we need to preserve smallpox. And that's because we've decided, and I think correctly by deontogenic uh, ethics, is that we've decided as a society that it's too risky, it's too much of a danger uh, for for humans, which are trying to serve as these kind of shepherds, and so there it would be ethical to, in this case, restrict an organism to very few or almost no places. Why do we have a moral obligation to expand and preserve the species? Doesn't it seem, from a philosophical point of view, that our end game begins with the death of our star, which is as astrophysically normal 
as our own physical mortality here on earth. If we can survive, if, if our, let's put it to you like this. Number one, you know, we're only, what, 225,000 years old. Hominids are older than mm. that, but the species, I'm going to say, not very old, right? So mm -hmm. in a billion years' time, nobody has a clue as to what kind of accidental evolution is going to continue to change Homo sapiens. We, we, mm -hmm. They may be a total different species, what, in half a million years. Mm -hmm. uh, I, mean, who, I mean, have you thought about that? Yeah, and, and uh, uh, with big applause. So I think it's something to be expected. So life is always evolving, ourselves included. And in that regard, you know, but we would look a little different. We might even have different functional capacities. But but there there's a, we're reaching a threshold today that is is distinct from every other uh, stage of life ever, as far as we know, is that it has always been accidental evolution, and we are now at the stage where we can do the directed evolution, which could be done in a sense more just and probably in a more stable capacity, because you know the way evolution has gone is you get you know boom and bust cycles of species that come and go, and it could be sometimes an asteroid created a crisis, or it could be change of the atmosphere. But we know, you know, it'll just come and go. But then if we just stay in that cycle, uh, and again, you look at the end of the star, which is I, I kind of like your description that a star dying is just as natural as a, as a person dying, if you will. It's something that they all do and that they have naturally done for all of eternity. So, you know, you know, why why fight that? And I, I'm definitely not fighting that. I just am planning with that in mind is that I think if if the star engulfs the planets and then goes to white dwarf, what if there's no other life anywhere else in the entire universe? What if this is really it? <laughs> and if and if that's true, I find that uh, you know sad. I find that to be a loss, right? So I find it uh, even in the case of complexity of life, I find it you know unethical because of it, either because it's rarity or also because of its ability to enable other ethical frameworks to enable you know, creativity, arts. You could look at music. You could look at science. Look at all the sort of facets of humanity. Uh, you know, we have our problems, don't get me wrong, as humans, but I think that all these other creations are uh, extraordinarily, you know, rich and, and worth preservation, you know, e even just as life forms. And I, I think that more and different kinds of life forms will come, and even more of them could be made uh, if we help uh, engineer different versions of them as well. And I, I think, um, you know, but I would view like the sun, you say, so people die and sons die, but, you know, also cells in your body die every day too, right? But uh, what we find sad is when the entire person is dead, not necessarily the cells in your skin. And so to me, I, 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 uh, I expect that the sun will die and the planet will eventually uh, become burned to a, a cinder, but that the life forms that it has spawned and hosted do not have to die. Many humans love wanderlust. I mean, they love to travel. They love to do adventure travel. Elon Musk wants to move to Mars. But many humans could care less about ever leaving their hometowns, much less the planet. And so I looked into this idea of whether humans are instinctually directed towards the idea of leaving the planet to avoid their own species' demise. When I had finished my, my book, Distant Wanderers, A Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and I came upon some statistics that at least half of the human population has no desire to travel. Well, and this has been historically the, the argument people make for, you know, why should we go to the moon or Mars or go to anywhere? They say, you know, humans are always you know, curious and they always explore. 
and I think that that's true, but it's it's not the reason I I I'm driven by this question and why I think about it every night is I is that I view it as I look ahead to a, a future where what if we don't find any other life and it turns out that life is exhausted and extinct you know extinguished on Earth I find that to be very sad so I would not want that to happen um, and for people who don't want to travel I I think that that's um, that's that's fine like those are the uh, people who might want to. Uh, work on other facets of humanity, everything from, you know, everything from, you know, the technical questions regarding uh, how do we engineer something to help with spaceflight or something totally unrelated to those travels. Basically, you could say, what about what if all I want to do is figure out the best way uh, to uh, to read a book uh, next to a fire and pick the best book for that? You know, it could be anything as close to or as distantly related uh, to any of these missions. And so I think that's actually part of the beauty of humanity is this breadth uh, of ideas, breadth of experience, and goals. But given the fact that it's been 50 years, and and let's uh, reiterate, you were talking about a 500-year plan, but it's already mm-hmm. been 50 years since uh, we last walked on the moon, and the 2024 Artemis deadline for NASA's human lunar return is fast approaching without any reassurance that this arbitrary deadline is going to be met. So are you discouraged about our rate of progress in terms of human spaceflight, I, I, you know, I, I wish it was always faster. I wish you know, I'm kind of I've lived in New York long enough. I'm generally kind of more impatient than I used to be. <laughs> but I, I would say, um, but I'm not disappointed because it, it is in like many human endeavors. You know, it, it's in fits and starts, or you know, it starts uh, might go quickly at one point, might go a little bit more slowly at another point. But it is a continual process and i mean we just had a helicopter flying around on mars you know a few weeks ago and is to is right now right so we have you know really leaps and bounds that have still already been ongoing just because we don't have you know cocktails and and uh, tacos on the moon or mars doesn't mean we're not getting closer towards that prospect in terms of understanding the human genome and our ability to bioengineer the human genome is the key to exploration off-world and to eventually settling not only Mars, perhaps uh, other bodies within our own solar system, and perhaps Earth-like planets or Earth-like moons around mm-hmm. other uh, sun-like mm-hmm. stars. Although we have sequenced the, our genome, and what does it mean, the term sequence? The sequencing is the part where we, ex- we basically catalog the, the genetic material inside the cells, and it's like really reading the book of life. And so I think... Uh, when we sequence DNA from a cell, it's like when you open a book off of a shelf and you can read out all the, the story. You can read the letters. We're looking at the letters of the genetic code to know essentially what's there, what's in that, that cell, or in this case, like that book of life. And when we sequence it, that means we can read that out and then, and then catalog it. So the same way, you know, today you can, you can search on Google for a, a snippet of a piece of a book that you once read and pick it up really quickly. You can do the same thing. Once you sequence DNA, you can quickly say, aha, have I seen this piece of DNA before? Is this coming from a human cell or a bacterial cell or a yeast or a plant? You know, once you have the sequence information, it lets you quickly discern from where it came on Earth or someday potentially on Mars. And so are you saying that you can literally go onto a computer? This is all digitized. It's all in digital form. I mean, you can actually Google, Google it, so to speak. We just put this website out uh, just recently and actually had a paper published about it. That shows, you know, voila, you type in any, any genetic sequence and it pops up where has it been seen in the world before. Even so, you write, the human genome is the most well-studied to date. We have yet to completely unravel all of its mysteries. Uh, how mm-hmm. many genes do we have? What are they doing? How are they regulated? 
Are there some do not disturb areas of the genome alongside those that can be more readily modified, altered, or manipulated? Okay, how many genes are there in the human genome? Like the, basically these these core functional elements. You know, it's akin to what people say, like how many pieces are in a car? Like, you know, you do you have about 10,000 nuts and bolts and elements of piece that put together a car? Uh, you know, the idea is that in every cell you have your genetic code and you want to know well, how many genes are, are doing something where they can either make like a protein or make the cell have a dis distinct function. Like how do you make red blood cells versus your immune system's white blood cells? How do you make different types of cells in the body? You know, all of that information is encoded in the DNA and also in what's called the, the epigenome or it's the regulation of that DNA. And what, what's extraordinary, though, is that the number of genes, so just the simple question, how many parts do I have in my genome? How many, how many genes do I have? That number has been changing uh, every year for the past, really, you know, 50 years. When, you know, there were first genes that were discovered with, uh, you know, in the 70s and the 80s for uh, different bacteria. And then human genes started being discovered and, and, and amplified and was called cloned. And then originally people thought maybe there were, you know, tens of thousands of genes. Some people at one point thought there were hundreds of thousands of genes in the human genome. But in 2001, we came out, the big first genome was finished and said, okay, we've got about around 25 or 30,000 genes, but that number has not stayed the same. We keep finding more genes. We've actually found about a thousand new genes every year for the past 10 years. And we just, sometimes they're only expressed in one cell at one time point. Like for example, the gene for fetal hemoglobin you will only find in fetuses or, or babies right after birth is because it's only expressed when you're really young, when you're in a, basically a fetus, right? So uh, if you if you didn't know that, though, you'd say, okay, I don't know about this gene because I'm only looking in adults. And so and similarly, we have found that basically uh, many uh, genes are only found in a certain cell or a certain time. And so that's why we keep discovering them. But, but that process is still ongoing, which I think is extraordinary and wonderful. And you write the, that by 2150... Uh, there will be radiation-resistant gene editing for astronauts. So let's first define what we mean by gene editing. And so the gene editing is, well, you know, once you have the catalog of genes in a given cell, then you can say, well, I would like to change it. I would like to, like you might open up a document uh, or an email, and you just click, you know, type out your letters, you click delete, you, um, you know, put a space or add different letters. You just, you know, no one thinks twice about writing an email and typing on their keyboard if it's if the gene editing tools get good enough, you could just do the same thing, but do it on DNA. So you could say, I'd like to change an A to a C, or I'd like to add a word or add a gene. You know, we are at the preliminary stages today where we can already do this, and it will only get better and better over the next you know century, where then it would become very commonplace and, and easy, and also probably safe and efficacious to do genome editing and also epigenome editing as well. I talked before about the epigenome, which is on top of DNA, hence epigenome. It's on top of the genetic material. What that means is then you don't have to necessarily add or remove genes or base or A's or C's or G's or T's like the genetic code. You can just change whether something is turned on or turned off. It's kind of like turning on the knobs of your stove and turning the heat off or turning heat on. You still have the stove there, but you just decide whether it's actually it has heat or doesn't have heat at that moment. So you can do the same thing with genes as well in your in your body. So, in other words, you write that by 20, 2150, the whole issue that plagued the ISS astronauts and the twin, the Kelly twins, of how much radiation they were receiving while in Earth orbit, will will be a non-issue. We will be able to actually make uh, humans radiation resistant, so that they can be cellularly prepared in mission-specific contexts that depend largely on the duration of the trip 
and whether they are traveling to harsh environments of the solar system. Your body, your organs, will they be radiation hardened, so to speak? They can be. So, I mean, yeah, you can imagine that, you know, at that point, we know, we, we've learned about genetic adaptations and, and different tools that other organisms use to protect their DNA and to repair it. We will have that full catalog of tools, basically, you know, the genetic toolbox of Earth at our disposal. And so we've shown in our own laboratory that you can take genes from a, an organism called the tardigrade, which is often called the water bear because it looks like a cute little bear. It can survive in the vacuum of space. It can survive you know, more than 10 times the amount of radiation that a human cell can and still survive. And so we've taken proteins that are made by that organism and put them in human cells, and we can get an 80% reduction in the damage to the DNA of human cells, and it helps it repair faster. So we could, you know, use it as a therapeutic, or we could use it as a gene therapy to have it be a more permanent change. But we have this extraordinary ability now to take sort of the uh, the lessons from other organisms and apply them uh, to our own. You know that by... Uh, 2200, that bioengineering of our own genome could include uh, enhanced vision capabilities so that uh, the Mm. human eye, we know that the human eye has evolved to specifically detect light between the visible wavelengths, that's 400 to 700 nanometers. Uh, But research, recent research at the University of Massachusetts Medical School has shown it might be possible to extend our vision to 750 to 1400 nanometers or, or to the near-infrared spectrum. This could be critical for long-duration missions, you write, that would take an astronaut to a planet far away from the sun, where low-light and infrared or near-infrared vision would be immensely useful. There are so many ways we could observe the world that are beyond just the visible spectrum that we're used to uh, that, that already occur in some mammals, right? So um, there's ways to actually can change the retina, change the structure of the eye so that you could make it so you could see uh, you know, these in these places that have very little light, for example. So I talk about that as a way to, again, take the evolutionary adaptations and the lessons of evolution from one species and then apply it to our own uh, body and our own survival, basically, as we go to these uh, more distant and uh, harder to survive on planets. Let's fast forward a bit and, and think about actually going to an off-world planet, not in our solar system, but like an Earth 2.0. So mm-hmm. what about the planet's atmosphere? To me, there would be just so many questions uh, that mm. to send a, a crew to an Earth-like planet, even if it had been studied for generations, that, that it would be risky. Uh, and you mentioned that a crew of settlers might have to even wait in orbit before yeah. the painstaking process of terraforming yeah. was done. That just seems a little bit crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, it, seems, it sounds hard, right? So we, we uh, there are some ideas of sending something called like Project Starshot, where we basically send a really fast probe to a candidate exoplanet and try and get information within 20 or 40 or 60 years. So depending on how far away it is, you know, where you could get, if something's traveling close enough to the speed of light, uh, into like a small probe, you might be able to get this information faster. But but there is this risk of you get there and it's not as good as you thought it was. So you got to go to a different exoplanet. So, you know, and that's why a lot of these parts of the book are towards the end of where I think we would need to have a lot of self-reliance technologies enabled by then so it would be less onerous on that crew. And so some of the methods include reactivating genes that allow us to make our own vitamin C in our bodies, uh, which other mammals can do, but we no longer can just through an accident of, of being lost through evolution. 
uh, or you could, you know, we need uh, a different amino acids in our diet. We could maybe try and engineer it so we can make all of them. You know, again, taking lessons from other creatures on Earth, we know that it can be done. It's just not done in our DNA and our cells. And so I think there's ways we could try and make those crews more self-reliant. So it's a bit of a uh, less uh, difficult of a process to have to switch to plan B when you're trying to find a new home. It seems to me we need to put more of our focus on achieving at least the speed of light, either via some sort of warp drive, which doesn't necessarily violate the theory of relativity. Uh, in other words, breaking mm-hmm. the speed of light. I think if you did that and could send some sort of robotic probe to continually check out you know, what was happening in your terraforming efforts or really get a, a sense of what was going on with a, your candidate Earth 2.0, that would save a crew from having to wait in orbit until the thing was terraformed. I mean, basically, they could just, you could, you could send the same crew in the same lifetime. I described different you know, methods of advanced propulsion that could occur in the next 500 years, including fusion drives, antimatter drives, warp drives, the ability of turning to full space-time, all, all of which could be done in a way that doesn't violate any of our knowledge of physics. But, but I would love it to have the timeline be shortened, right? So that would make it easier on the crew it would make it so there may have to be only one or two generations on that ship to another star, uh, or, or maybe even zero, right? So it could all be within the same lifespan. That would be wonderful. But I, I built it purposely to be, you know, as, as um, straightforward from what we know today that required no leap in technology or even real knowledge uh, or change of what we already used today technologically. But what about the simply bioengineering human astronauts to have double, triple, or even quadruple their existing lifespans uh it, it, so this is something i think we'll see more of is that you'll get longer lifespans that you will see uh people have even not just longer lifespan longer health span too they will live longer uh and healthier lives and so i think we will see more of that uh for sure occurring uh which, which makes it just possible so you know instead of 20 generations in a craft to make it to one of the good candidate planets maybe it's only five or ten uh and that would be i think we'll see more of that i just don't know Exactly how much. Like you know, tortoises can live to be on 200 years. Some trees can live to be thousands of years. So we know it's possible. It just hasn't been seen yet in sort of a complex mammal like humans. But there is is one uh, big 500-pound uh, gorilla in the room, which uh, isn't probably addressed as much as it should be, and that is the psychological toll, uh, the sociological toll on astronauts on these long-duration missions. And you write that... Um, with enough time, these analog missions performed on Earth have shown that after 500 days in isolation with a small crew, for instance, like Mar- the Mars 500 project, most of the relationships were strained or even antagonistic. And yeah. there are many descriptions of space madness appearing in both fiction and nonfiction. And you note that their modeling and association to risk is limited. So there's simply no knowledge of how the same crew and its descendant generations would behave and and this is really yeah. the wild card question that it really has nothing to do with bioengineering or or does it not is there a way that we could genetically uh, engineer ourselves to be more psychologically resilient for instance yeah yeah be more resilient or even to be more docile and this this um, you know mental health and and sort of safety and security uh, are a huge component but one of the biggest components one of the biggest risks of long term space flight and it need to be, you know, really carefully constructed, maintained, uh, monitored. And what's interesting, though, is the idea of um, 
you know, I would say 50 years ago, if you asked me, could we make it so humans are more docile and, and make it so you could engineer that? I would have said, well, you know, some people are nice and some people are mean and some people are hyper and some people are not. And how do we really know what's driving that? But but we know, at least in animal models, that it's actually possible uh, to create basically a different kind of species in about only 50 years. And so this is a, a very famous experiment with what's called the silver foxes that were in Russia that the researchers, their geneticists in the 30s and 40s said, well, let's, can we turn foxes into dogs, basically? And so they continually bred only those that were the most docile, the most friendly foxes, and then didn't for any of those that were very aggressive. And within really about 50 years, they created dogs from scratch. So the ears became floppy. The silver foxes began to be, you know, essentially get excited when they would see humans approach versus aggressive. And they would even track the eyeballs of humans. So, you know, when a dog looks at you, it looks right at your eyes. But most foxes might just look at you briefly and view you as a threat and look away. But, like, these traits uh, can be bred. And the brain chemistry was altered when they looked at the brains of, of some of the, the evolved, the directed evolution evolved uh, silver foxes. They had changed. And so this is, you know, I'm not advocating we do this necessarily on humans, but it just shows that it is possible to do and has already been done, actually, for one other kind of mammal. And then how do you deal, though, with people who are just totally against any sort of bioengineering that they do say it's playing God? To them, I say, you know, antibiotics are the same idea. You take an evolutionary lesson from one creature, apply it to our own survival. Or uh, a lot of those same people who might be against genetic manipulations or, or cellular engineering, if they get uh, cancer, I, sh- I'm, I can almost guarantee almost all of them will take the most cutting edge therapies that will keep them alive, which involve engineering cells in some cases. And so I think that it, it is it is one thing to think in the abstract about uh, things you might find unusual, uh, but I think it's it's um, it's misleading for two reasons. One is that when it really comes to survival, most of those people would want to live, and, and biotechnology is often the way that will keep them alive, quite frankly. But the second is that we are already naturally en- engineering our environment. Like, the, probably the most natural thing humans can do is to organize the atoms of our surroundings. Think of uh, think of just farming, so we can eat. Think of you know, livestock. Think of just even rearranging the books on your table. This capacity of engineering little bits of the universe to survive or to make it more beautiful is about the most human thing that we can do. How do you respond to people who say it's easier and safer and maybe even better to continue exploring our solar system and beyond robotically? Yeah, I, I think we need both. I think it is for some things, and that, that's why I talk about that. You might need AI for to even serve as the better shepherds of life because they can survive in harsher environments. Uh, I think we'll need them, but we'll also need the human enterprise as well to help explore. So I, I, I'm very much a let's do both, not one or the other uh, in this question, I'd say. You're right that by the time our sun becomes a white dwarf with only about 54% of its current mass and a much lower luminosity, some five to six billion years from now, you write that if any humans have not made it out of the solar system by then, they will have to be living on the outer planets. The inner planets will be gone by that point, right? They'll probably be engulfed by the sun or charred pretty much to a complete cinder. So maybe you could survive on Mars, but um, if if there's anything left. uh, But it could be asteroids, it could be other moons. Uh, where you'd want to be able to survive is is what's uh, I think very likely. But wouldn't you be flabbergasted if it, if even in a billion years' time we could not figure out a way to get to the next star system? I mean that that, that w- <laughs> <laughs> I I would be disappointed. Yes, I, I I think we should be able to figure it out by then. 
but some people might want to stay, uh, or there might be some uh, unique uh, element that we only find in this solar system that we don't find somewhere else, and so there might be people who'd want to stay for it. So um, it, it just depends uh, very much on, on what we find out there. So what has to change in terms of our humanity's mindset in order to meet your 500-year goals? Yeah, I, I, I would. I think there are some things that you know should change in terms of how do we view just each other? How do we view uh, collaboration between species? How do we work well together? Right now, we don't work that well together, right? The U.S. and China have a war, a bit of a trade war and other IP wars. The U.S. and Russia have their own scuffles and still do to some degree. So I think having more of a recognition of the shared humanity and the shared goals uh, should help people work more closely and, and, and uh, believe in each other more. And so I think if there was really a, a species-wide goal, there could be a species-wide uh, coordination and, and, and sort of action. And the best example recently is like uh, chlorofluorocarbons that were threatening the ozone layer. Uh, we work together as a global community to stop that, right? And so climate change is also being addressed now a bit a bit more slowly than CFCs, but it is being addressed. And awareness of planetary scale challenges require planetary action, but it's that hasn't really been possible until the past few decades where we have a global communication system and a way to work together. So I actually think even though we've had fits and starts as countries, as, as cultures, as, as humans fighting each other for the past really few millennia, I think we didn't really know what we were doing for most of that history. But now I think we, it's pretty clear uh, where we are in the universe and what we stand to, th- uh, what are the threats to all of us that we can work to fight against. You write in your uh, acknowledgments in the book that the first seeds for this uh, work were planted on your 15th birthday when your aunt and uncle gave you the Isaac Asimov novel Foundation. That novel imagined the ease which, with, with which humans could live across the entire galaxy. You write that the idea never left my head. Yeah, so I've, I've been thinking about it uh, ever since then, is that this is an extraordinary view of what humans are capable of, that we uh, can really become multiplanetary, even multi interstellar in terms of where we go, how we live. And I, I'd quantify that as a real uh, view of liberty, is that you have the ability to use our knowledge and our skills and acumen to survive in more than one place. And that is one of the best manifestations of freedom uh, and also of serving as guardians of life by, by enacting that goal. So I think we are really at an exciting crossroads. We're finally going to be able, I think, to do it. And I know you're not an astronomer, uh, but um, you really see this, this long-term goal of expanding humanity beyond our solar system as preserving our unique place potentially in the universe, as sentient beings, beings who were capable of composing beautiful classical music, having artists who are able to catch the subtleties of the Mona Lisa, yeah, uh, yeah. the wing victory in the Louvre, the sculpture, um, mm. and also capable of building radio telescopes, beautiful optical telescopes and sending their species successfully to walk on their moon and back mm-hmm. within 10 years when they set their mind to it. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So you are really trying to preserve our, our culture, our history, not just our species, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a full package. Uh, all these things have, have, have value, have, have unique value. Again, we don't, as far as we know, they're not anywhere else in the universe. Like, th- this is it. So if we don't preserve it, if we don't nurture it and then uh, care to expand it, uh, it would be lost forever. And I, I, I think it doesn't have to be, it was one part of the tragedy. Like, it would be the equivalent of suicide rather than just a murder. 
it, 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 we don't have to let ourselves die. And the other thing is that there's so much inherent beauty uh, in all these things that we've built and, and what humanity uh, is and what can be that I think uh, I wanted to preserve as long as possible. Finally, uh, what goes through your own head when you look up at a clear night sky? Uh, I, I think like many people, when I look in the stars and you know can kind of feel maybe the wind uh, between my toes and hear the rustling of leaves in the distance and look up at the night sky, it is one filled with wonder and and sort of humility of, of you know what's out there and, and what where how far we could go and what we could reach, but also a sense of that th- that's where we're going. That this is actually. Uh, going leaving Earth is not Plan B. It's it's Plan A. It's where we're supposed to go, um, and it's actually uh, our duty, our deontogenic uh, purpose uh, to actually go there. Chris, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Sure. Yeah, I'm on uh, you know basically on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the usuals. Uh, so on Twitter, it's uh, it's at Mason Lab. It's Mason underscore Lab. Uh, on Instagram, it's Christopher.e.mason and e for Edward, and then also uh, my, my, my Cornell email address and other ones are you just just Google my name and email, and they're on many papers, many places. But uh, chm two zero four two at med.cornell.edu. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Christopher Mason, thanks for giving us a better understanding of how our progeny may get to the stars. Thanks so much. Really a pleasure. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>